Hi, my name's Eric. I'll be reading you selections from today's e-edition of the Cape Cod Times. Today's date is Tuesday, January 2nd of 2024. We'll start with the weather, as we always do. Today across the Cape and Islands, plenty of sunshine, a high of 40 expected. Tonight, clear and cold, a low of 29 in the overnight. Tomorrow, Wednesday, partly sunny, high of 44, low of 32. Thursday looks to be cloudy with a little rain in the afternoon, our first wet seasonal piece of the new year, high of 41, low of 26. Little rain in the afternoon. Breezy in the morning on Friday and mostly sunny. High of 37, low of 27. Getting chilly into the weekend. Partial sunshine. Might have rain and ice falling at night. High of 37, a low of 28. So a chilly weekend ahead. Uh, but a fairly uh, normal dry today, tomorrow, into Thursday. Sunrise today was at 7.08 a.m. It will set at 4.22 p.m. The moon will rise at 10.58 p.m. and set at 10.54 a.m. Moving to the front of the paper where the lottery results are kept, and we read these because, well, somebody asked for them. If there's something you would like read to the blind or those who are print disabled, you can email us at info at audiblelocalledger.org or call us at 508-539-2030 and we'll consider reading it. And if you miss any of the information that we share in our readings, you can always go to audiblelocalledger.org and in the upper right corner is the archived readings tab. If you click on that, you'll find a week's worth of our newspapers and you can catch up on anything that you might have missed. You'll also find find under the literature tab a wide variety of periodicals and literature for your listening pleasure that stays up there permanently. And all of that is free for the blind and the print disabled at audiblelocalledger.org, the archived readings tab. Now, for our latest results of the lottery, we go to the MassLottery.com website because the Cape Cod Times goes to press too early to give you the latest results. And if you ask for them, care enough for that, then we certainly care enough to give you the latest results. So for the numbers game of Monday, January 1st, New Year's Day, in the midday drawing, the numbers were 1848. Again, the midday drawing yesterday in the numbers game 1848. The evening drawing numbers were 8569. Again, last night's numbers game for Monday, January 1st, 8569. Powerball numbers for last night, Monday, January 1st, 12, 21, 42, 44, and 49, with one the bonus number. Mass cash numbers for Monday, January 1st. 14, 15, 24, 28, and 33. Megabucks numbers for Monday, January 1st. 3, 11, 14, 21, 29, and 41. And finally, Lucky for Life rounds out our lottery results for Monday, January 1st. 6, 7, 15, 31, and 43, with 8 the bonus number. Good luck to all who play. Remember us if you win. Now from the cover of today's Cape Cod Times, a reminder, today's date is January 2nd of 2024.
Cover the basics is the headline above the fold if there was such a thing in a digital newspaper. Exotic Pets, a new focus for a Cape veterinarian practice by Gwen Fries of the Cape Cod Times. If Santa brought you a bearded dragon, a macaw, a guinea pig, rat, or rabbit, your first call should be to one of the Cape hospitals that care for the baker's dozen of exotic pet species often kept in Massachusetts. The most important thing is to cover the basics. You get a puppy, the first thing you do is you get a veterinary appointment. Well, exotics need that too, said Dr. Kira Berg, who spent 13 years becoming a board-certified specialist and surgeon for exotic and zoo animals. Six months ago, Dr. Berg joined Cape Cod Veterinary Specialists with offices in Dennis and Buzzards Bay to set up a practice entirely devoted to exotic and zoo animals. We currently don't have a 24-hour center for emergencies for exotics. I'm the only specialist and surgeon for exotics, and I can't be in the building 24-7. But when people call for an appointment, we can do triage and work with them to get patients in as quickly as possible, Berg said. Cape Cod Veterinary Specialists does provide emergency care for dogs and cats, she said. Now we can offer CTs and other diagnostics, and and we do get diagnostic referrals from other veterinarians, she said. Erica Chamney, who's the practice manager of Oceanside Animal Hospital in Sandwich, said her office sends patients to Dr. Berg's unit for CT scans and ultrasounds, as well as referring complicated or emergency surgeries to her. It's really nice to be able to refer locally, Chamney said. How many exotic pets are living on Cape Cod? Located on the Bourne Bridge approach, the office is known for its life-size giraffe statue that's left over from a miniature golf course. The Buzzards Bay office features a full array of imaging equipment. Neither Berg nor Chamney know a way to get statistics on how many exotic pets are living on Cape Cod. Chamney said Oceanside's practice has remained half dogs and cats and half exotics. The nonprofit Samson Fund for Cape Cod has recently added exotics in case people don't have the money to care for their exotic pets, so that has been very helpful, she said. While the equipment at Cape Cod Veterinary Specialists is similar to medical technology for humans, the patients can have dramatically different bodies. We recently had Max, a 44-year-old blue and gold macaw, in for CT on a mass that in a human would have been in the diaphragm. But in the bird, there is no diaphragm, so we couldn't use that marker, Berg said. Not only are the patients built differently, they sometimes bite. Lorelei DeVolio, a 17-year employee of Cape Cod Veterinary Specialists and one of two exotic pet-certified technicians in the state, 15 are in the country, Berg said, keeps a gentle but firm hand on the patients. Last month, DeVolio assisted Berg when Chris Fraser of Pembroke brought in her three guinea pigs for a wellness visit. This was definitely not the pig's idea, and they became especially wiggly and let loose high-pitched squeals when Berg opened their mouths one by one to reach back and check if their teeth had grown too long. Davolio held each swaddled pig as Berg spoke gently, her voice pitched higher than normal. Berg said the cost of keeping an exotic pet varies widely from case to case particularly for specialty care, including diagnostic imaging and blood work. She recommends exotic pet insurance, which, Berg said, is only offered now by one company, Nationwide. The blog Ferrets and Friends LLC offers charts showing startup and annual maintenance costs for different species. 
A rabbit, for example, is $98 to acquire, but is estimated to cost $822 per year to keep. One of the issues with rabbits, Berg said, is that females who don't give birth and aren't spayed are much more prone to cancer of the reproductive organs. Berg said regular wellness care and good husbandry is critical. Husbandry includes the pet's living space, diet, fresh air, sunlight, food, exercise, and other specific needs at home. 80 to 90 percent of illnesses we see in exotics are related to husbandry problems, Berg said, noting that wellness appointments are at least 60 minutes and they cover discussion of avoiding potential problems. Animals who are considered prey in the wild will instinctively do all they can to hide pain or illness because it would make them vulnerable to predators. That means pet owners have to be vigilant about small changes. For Fraser, that meant weighing each of her guinea pigs at 6 a.m. each day to chart weight fluctuations. When Dr. Berg said it was okay to ease off to a weekly weigh-in, Fraser replied, Oh no, it's just how I start my day now. Fraser said she's making the reverse trip from her South Shore home to Cape Cod because she's so pleased with Berg's knowledge and bedside manner that she followed the veterinarian when she left her previous job. Berg said her parents raised her with an appreciation for exotic pets, from rats, they're the smartest, to snakes. I didn't mention snakes because a lot of people are afraid of them. I'm fascinated with reptiles and how they've developed, she said. I felt a calling to be able to be a voice for their species. One of Berg's first case studies involved an adventurous bearded dragon who, while stretching his legs with his owner, snarfed down a red glass marble. They're attracted to red, I guess because it looks like a berry. Hesitant to perform surgery because reptiles' slow metabolism can make anesthesia risky, Berg used an endoscopy imaging tube and a suction wand to locate and vacuum out the marble. If she didn't already have cats and chinchillas, Berg said, she would consider adding a bearded dragon to the menagerie. Bearded dragons are the laboratory retrievers of reptiles, Berg said. They're very cuddly and each have their own personality. Well, to each his own. Moving to the Cape and Islands section, as we try to keep it local, as you can imagine, there is not a lot of news. Um, a lot of reporters probably on vacation and break. A lot of news people on vacation and break. But in the Cape and Islands, there is um, one other story that's local. State moves migrants from Bourne to improve services, official says, by Rachel Devaney in Bourne. About two dozen families were packed onto a bus, along with their belongings, and transferred from the area after staying at the Eastern Inn for roughly three months, according to front desk clerk David Patel. The 30 rooms that were occupied remain empty, said Patel. They were good here. He said we had no problems with them, no trouble at all. Hotel staff was informed around December 1st by the state the group would be leaving December 14th, Patel said. Families sheltered at the Eastern Inn were comprised of migrant families and long-term Massachusetts residents. The same goes for families that are currently being housed throughout the state, according to Noah Bombard, a spokesperson for State Executive of Housing and Livable Communities. Statewide, about half the families in state shelter systems are long-term mass residents, not new arrivals, said Bombard. The Eastern Inn will no longer serve as a supplemental shelter site, said Kevin Connor, press secretary for the state agency. 
Connor said 26 families were moved from the Eastern Inn. And for confidentiality reasons, Connor said he couldn't share the current location of families. But the Eastern Inn, said Bourne Town Manager Marlene McCollum, will continue to operate with an inn holder's license. With the departure of families from Eastern Inn in Bourne, migrant families and state residents remain housed at a Yarmouth hotel and on Joint Base Cape Cod, according to State Senator Julian Sear, a Democrat from Truro. Families were to be transferred from the Eastern Inn to consolidate supplemental supplemental shelter sites, according to an email sent by Governor Maura Healy's office to McCollum on December 1st. McCollum provided the email to the Times. State Senator Susan Moran, a Democrat from Falmouth, was also notified, but deferred to Healy's office when asked for comment by the Times. State Rep. Stephen Zarhos, a Republican from Barnstable, did not return calls or emails seeking comment. In addition to people who were sheltered at Eastern Inn, other families across the state were reshuffled for the same reason, said Bombard. We're moving families toward shelters that have providers on site, said Bombard. The Eastern Inn didn't have an on-site provider. Well, what is an on-site provider? On-site providers, said Bombard, are nonprofits or other organizations that provide services or facilitate services, such as booking and paying for hotel rooms to shelter families. The providers are eventually reimbursed by the state, he said. In some situations, the state pays shelter for hotel and motel rooms directly, said Bombard. In most instances, shelter sites give the state as many rooms as they can spare. The demand for emergency assistance has rapidly expanded over the past year, and the state continues to set up short-term hotel shelter sites, said Emergency Assistance Director General Scott Rice in a statement that was provided to the Times by Bombard. We are now in a position where we can transition some of these sites into new larger sites to facilitate better coordination and delivery of wraparound services, said Rice. Staff's also working to ensure continuity of education, medical care, and other services for families that are being sheltered, and support for impacted communities, said Rice. In an August 28th letter to Healy, Zarhos voiced his opposition to sheltering migrants on Joint Base Cape Cod and area hotels and motels. A number of local officials, Zarhos said in the letter, complained to him about the ongoing effects of housing migrants on the Cape. Stuart Daniels, Zarhos's legislative aide, verified the letter and said Zarhos firmly stands by the letter he sent to Healy. Towns in his area, Zarhos said in the letter, find themselves underprepared and inadequately equipped to deal with an influx of migrant families who need housing, food, clothing, and resources like health care and education. But the state, said Bombard, has already agreed to help towns with resources and will reimburse municipalities for any costs that are associated with education for sheltered families. That money isn't immediate, but that's happening, said Bombard. Healy signed a $3.1 billion spending bill December 4th, which allotted $250 million to the emergency shelter system. Part of that funding will also be allocated to state-funded food benefits for migrants who are in the U.S. legally but who aren't citizens. The benefits expansion will cost about $6 million, which advocates say will last seven months. On September 11th, Yarmouth Town Administrator Robert Rittenauer said six migrant families were placed at Yarmouth Resorts for shelter. Families were later moved to Harborside Suites because of code violations at Yarmouth Resorts. 
There are now 21 families at Harborside Suites, and they hold 25 rooms and 35 children were entered into the Yarmouth school system. While many residents felt fear and anxiety at the arrival of the migrants, Rittenauer said that the almost four-month stay in Yarmouth hasn't resulted in any financial strain on the town. Issues associated with national policies on immigration during an election year helped to spread additional fervor and concern, he said. The fear was about communicable diseases, education, and about crime, a wide range of topics, he said. But none of those fears ever came to fruition. There hasn't been any widespread impact on the community. It's actually the families who are being sheltered that should be concerned, said Rittenor. The facility and the location of housing is problematic, he said. Not only because long-term stays violate zoning bylaws, but also because a motel room isn't a pleasant living condition for young families. The on-site provider at Harborside Suites is the Massachusetts Army National Guard, according to a Yarmouth Town document. Has crime been an issue? Since families moved to Harborside Suites, Sears said he hasn't heard of any rising crime at the shelter location. I've spoken to Chief Kevin Lennon several times. There's been no increase in calls for service related to the facility, said Sears. I don't think they've had any calls for service other than one call initially for a health-related issue. Brandon Esip, Chief of Police in Bourne, also said officers haven't noticed a significant change in service calls surrounding the Eastern Inn. Without taking a deep dive into statistical information, I can say that there hasn't been any significant peaks or drops associated with that address, Esip said. While Rittenor hasn't received any kind of notification from the state, he remains hopeful that families in Yarmouth will be placed in better-suited living quarters soon. That was the goal of the program all along, said Rittenor. It's encouraging seeing the consolidation program initiated in Bourne. We hope the Yarmouth location will also be subject to similar consolidation soon. And that completes the local news listed in the Cape Cod Times of today, Tuesday, January 2nd of 2024. The headline moving into the world news and national news, War-Torn World Welcomes New Year. This is from the cover of today's Cape Cod Times. Festivities, some somber inspire messages of hope. This is from the Associated Press. New Year's Day arrived to cheers from thousands in New York's Times Square, where a sparkling crystal ball descended to start 2024 with hope for some, even as the world's ongoing conflict subdued celebrations and raised security concerns across the globe. It's beautiful, Corinne Christian of Charlotte, North Carolina said of the scene, Seconds past midnight as Frank Sinatra's New York, New York blared from speakers in the square and many in the crowd held cell phones in the air trying to capture the spectacle of it all. The march of midnight from time zone to time zone brought 2024 first to places like Australia, where more than a million people watched a pyrotechnic display centered around Sydney's famous opera house and Harbour Bridge, a number of spectators equivalent to one in five of the city's residents. It would be another 16 hours before New York finished 2023. There were snapshots of joy from country to country as the new year was welcomed with optimism that its days will bring more joy than sorrow. A small army of thousands of police officers worked to keep New York City safe, just as heightened security had done in the city's midnight hit first. New York has seen nearly daily protests sparked by the Israel-Hamas war. 
Some 90,000 police and security officers were deployed around France, including along the Avenue des Champs-Élysées, where large crowds took in a multidimensional light show projected onto the Arc de Triomphe, showcasing the history of Paris and sports on the menu for next year's Summer Olympics in the city. Stunning fireworks displays bloomed at iconic locations like the Acropolis in Athens, Greece. They were reflected in the sleek glass walls of the world's tallest building, the Burj Khalifa in Dubai, UAE, and accompanied a collective cheer filling the air in Nairobi, Kenya. China celebrated relatively quietly, with most major cities banning fireworks over safety and pollution concerns. Still, people gathered and performers danced in colorful costumes in Beijing, while a crowd released wish balloons in Chongqing. During his New Year address, President Xi Jinping said that the country would focus on building momentum for economic recovery in 2024 and pledged China would surely be reunified with Taiwan. In Taipei, Taiwan's capital, the mood was upbeat as revelers gathered for fireworks at the Taipei 101 skyscraper and at concerts and other events citywide. In India, thousands of revelers from the financial hub of Mumbai watched the sunset over the Arabian Sea. Fireworks in New Delhi raised concerns that the capital, already infamous for its poor air quality, would be blanketed by a toxic haze on the first morning of the new year. Across Japan, people gathered at temples, such as the Tsukiji Temple in Tokyo, where visitors were given free hot milk and corn soup as they stood in line to strike a massive bell. And about two million people gathered at Rio de Janeiro's Copacabana Beach under light drizzle to watch 12 minutes of fireworks in one of the world's most popular locations for New Year's Eve. Gaza and Ukraine wars grind on. In Russia, the country's military actions in Ukraine overshadowed end-of-year celebrations, with the usual fireworks and concert on Moscow's Red Square cancelled, as they were last year. Even without the festivities, people gathered in the square. After shelling in the Russian border city of Belgorod Saturday killed 24 people, some local authorities across the country also cancelled their fireworks displays, including in Vladivostok. Millions were expected to tune in to President Vladimir Putin's New Year's pre-recorded address in which he said no force could divide Russians and stop the country's development. Israeli strikes in the Gaza Strip killed at least 35 people on Sunday, hospital officials said, as fighting raged across the tiny enclave a day after Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said the war will continue for many more months, quote-unquote. Skyscrapers in Tel Aviv were lit up in yellow to call for the release of hostages held by Palestinian militants in Gaza for more than 80 days. In the Gaza Strip, displaced Palestinians huddled around fires in a makeshift refugee camp. From the intensity of the pain we live, we do not feel that there is a new year, said Kamal al-Zanaiti, who has lost multiple family members in the conflict. All the days are the same. Global tensions spur vigilance. Finally, New York Mayor Eric Adams said there were no specific threats to his city's annual bash, but nevertheless, police said they expanded the security perimeter around the party, creating a buffer zone to allow them to head off potential demonstrations. On New Year's Eve 2022, a machete-wielding man attacked three police officers a few blocks from Times Square. 
The Las Vegas Strip was closed to vehicle traffic and armed law enforcement officers lined the Strip as thousands of revelers gathered and street musicians played before midnight when fireworks were launched simultaneously from multiple casinos. The city of Las Vegas said more than 400,000 people were expected at that celebration. The next headline, Japan lowers alert after earthquakes, but coastal residents are still warned not to go home by Yuri Kageyama of the Associated Press in Tokyo. Japan dropped its highest level tsunami alert issued following a series of major earthquakes on Monday, but told residents of coastal areas not to return to their homes as deadly waves could still come. The quakes, the largest of which had a magnitude of 7.6, started a fire and collapsed buildings on the west coast of Japan's main island, Honshu. It was unclear how many people might have been killed or hurt. The the Japan Meteorological Agency reported more than a dozen quakes in the Japan Sea off the coast of Ishikawa and nearby prefectures shortly after 4 p.m. At least six homes were damaged by the quakes, with people trapped inside, government spokesman Yoshimasa Hayashi said. A fire broke out in Wajima City, Ishikawa Prefecture, and electricity was out for more than 30,000 households, he said. The agency initially issued a major tsunami warning for Ishikawa and lower-level tsunami warnings or advisories for the rest of the western coast of the island of Honshu, as well as in the northernmost of its main islands, Hokkaido. The warning was downgraded to a regular tsunami several hours later, meaning the waters could still reach up to 10 feet. Aftershocks could also slam the same area over the next few days, it said. Japanese public broadcaster NHK-TV initially warned torrents of water could reach as high as 16 and a half feet. NHK said the tsunami waves could keep returning and warnings were continuing to be aired hours after the initial alert. Several aftershocks also rocked the region. Hayashi stressed that it was critical for people in coastal areas to get away from the oncoming tsunami. Every minute counts. Please evacuate to a safe area immediately, he said. People returning to get their wallets and other belongings have been known to be swept away and drowned even hours after the first evacuation warning. People were evacuated to stadiums where they will likely have to stay for a few days. Hayashi said no reports of deaths or injuries had been confirmed from the quakes, saying the situation was still unclear. Japan's military was taking part in the rescue efforts, he said. Japanese media footage showed people running through the streets and red smoke spewing from a fire in a residential neighborhood. Photos showed a crowd of people, including a woman with a baby on her back, standing by huge cracks that had ripped through the pavement. Some people sustained minor injuries when they tripped and fell while fleeing, or objects fell off shelves and hit them, according to NHK. Bullet trains in the area were halted, although some parts of the service were restored by the evening. Parts of the highway were also closed and water pipes had burst, according to NHK. Some cell phone services in the region weren't working. The meteorological agency said in a nationally broadcast news conference that more major quakes could hit the area over the next week, especially in the next two or three days. More than a dozen strong quakes had been detected in the region with risks of setting off landslides and houses collapsing, according to the agency. Takashi Wakabayashi, a worker at a convenience store in Ishikawa Prefecture, said some items had tumbled from the shelves, but the biggest problem was the huge crowd of people who had shown up to stock up on bottled water, rice balls, and bread. 
We have customers at three times the level of usual, he said. Tsunami warnings were also issued for parts of North Korea and Russia. The Japanese government has set up a special emergency center to gather information on the quakes and tsunami and relay them speedily to residents to ensure safety, Prime Minister Fumio Kishida told reporters. Japan is an extremely quake-prone nation. In March of 2011, a major quake and tsunami caused meltdowns at a nuclear plant. The latest warning was the first time since the 2011 disaster that a tsunami warning of this magnitude was issued. Government spokesman Hayashi told reporters that nuclear plants in the affected area had not reported any irregularities on Monday. Nuclear regulators said no rises in radiation levels were detected at the monitoring posts located in the region. We have uh, one obituary listed in today's Cape Cod Times dated Tuesday, January 2nd of 2024. It's of Patricia Pat Nay Walsh Deaver. It's with heavy hearts we announce the passing of Pat Deaver, formerly of Arlington, Winchester, and West Yarmouth, a beloved wife, mother, grandmother, sister, aunt, and friend. She was born April 21st, 1940, in Hyde Park. Pat's life was one filled with love, laughter, and unwavering kindness. She was predeceased by her twin brothers, who died shortly after birth, and her younger sister and friend, Linda Maloney, formerly of Walpole in West Yarmouth. Pat was an intelligent, strong, and resilient woman. She graduated from St. Thomas Aquinas High School and went on to attend Fisher Junior College. Upon graduation, she began her career at the law firm of George F. K. Hill Esquire, where she met her soulmate and loving husband of 59 years, Edward, known as Ned J. Deaver, Jr., in addition to leaving behind her beloved husband, she is survived by many who will miss her dearly. Her grandchildren, ranging in ages from 6 to 28, kept her busy with baseball, basketball, theater, dancing, Twins Tuesday, cheering, softball, and movie screenings. She loved a good wiffle ball game, allowing her backyards to become baseball diamonds, and she relished summer nights eating dinner on the beach at sunset, with her grandkids playing the sound of the ocean is background. Pat was a devoted friend and family member, constantly showering those around her with love, laughter, and support. She was known for her love of dancing, especially the jitterbug, when she and Ned would clear the dance floor with their moves. Pat's dedication to her children was unwavering as she never missed a single activity or event. Her warmth and generosity extended beyond her immediate family, making everyone feel loved and welcomed. After her youngest child was in elementary school, Pat joined the staff of the Arlington Housing Authority, where her co-workers became friends and she was promoted to the financial director. However, nothing brought her more joy than spending time with her family on Cape Cod, where she eventually settled with Ned. She loved her neighbors and the families of Wimbledon Beach as much as those neighbors from her early days on Moccasin Path, where her young family began. Pat's legacy of love Inclusivity and unwavering support will live on in the hearts of all who knew her. Her impact on the world around her was immeasurable, and her memory will be forever treasured. Visiting hours will be held in the Brown and Hickey Funeral Home at 36 Trapello Road in Belmont on Wednesday, January 3rd, from 4 to 7 p.m. That's tomorrow. A funeral mass will be celebrated at St. Eulalia Church, 
50 Ridge Street in Winchester on Thursday morning, January 4th at 11 a.m. Relatives and friends are kindly invited. The interment will follow in the Wildwood Cemetery in Winchester. And that concludes the obituaries listed in today's Cape Cod Times, dated Tuesday, January 2nd of 2024. Heading back to the front page, finishing off the articles, Israel to pull five brigades from Gaza. The troops will get a rest, but a prolonged fight still seen. By Janine Santucci of USA Today. Israel's military says it's planning to pull thousands of soldiers from ground operation in the Gaza Strip, the first significant drawdown of its forces since Hamas's deadly October 7th attacks that launched the war. The military decision comes amid Israel's Supreme Court decision Monday to strike down a key component of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's contentious judicial overhaul, a decision that threatens to reopen fissures in Israeli society that preceded the war. The IDF, Israel Defense Forces, said in a statement Monday that five brigades would be pulling out of Gaza in the coming weeks for training and rest, while fierce fighting continued in areas of Gaza. Military leaders say armed forces are planning to continue the mission of eradicating Hamas in the new year. The objectives of the war require prolonged fighting, and we are preparing accordingly, military spokesperson Daniel Hagari said in a briefing on Sunday when he first announced the drawback without specifying the number of forces that would be affected. These adaptations are designed to ensure planning and preparation for the continuation of 2024, as the IDF must plan ahead, understanding that we will be required for additional tasks and warfare throughout this year. Hagari said bringing reservists back to their families and their jobs will significantly ease the burden of the war on Israel's economy. The IDF's ground offensive on Gaza was launched after the October 7th attacks in Israel border communities by the militant group Hamas, which killed about 1,200 people, mostly civilians, and took about 240 people hostage. About 130 Israeli and foreign hostages remain in captivity in Gaza. Israel's military said 172 of its troops have been killed. Netanyahu pledged over the weekend that the war with Hamas will continue for many more months, despite growing international calls for a ceasefire amid concerns of a growing humanitarian crisis in Gaza. The U.S., while firmly supporting Israel's right to defend itself against Hamas and supplying its military with weapons, has urged Netanyahu to take more care to avoid civilian casualties. An estimated 1.9 million people, or roughly about 85% of the population, have been displaced across the besieged enclave some multiple times as they seek safety from Israeli bombardment, the UN's Humanitarian Affairs Office has said. Since the start of the war, more than 21,900 Palestinians have been killed, according to the health ministry in Hamas-run Gaza on Saturday. The ministry doesn't differentiate between the deaths of militants and civilians. About 70% of those killed were reported to be women and children. But again, it's from the Gaza's health ministry, which said Monday an additional 156 people were killed in the past day. The Israeli Supreme Court decision on Monday to strike down Netanyahu's contentious judicial overhaul could stir up unrest within the nation that had been brewing since well before the war. Those divisions were largely put aside while the country focused on the war in Gaza. 
Monday's court decision could reignite those tensions, which sparked months of mass protests against the government and had rattled the cohesion of the powerful military. There was no immediate reaction from Netanyahu. In Monday's decision, the court narrowly voted to overturn a law passed in July that prevents judges from striking down government decisions they deem unreasonable. Opponents had argued that Netanyahu's efforts to remove the standard of reasonableness opens the door to corruption and improper appointments of unqualified cronies to important positions. The law was the first in a planned overhaul of the Israeli justice system that was put on hold after the Hamas attack on October 7th. In an 8-7 decision, the Supreme Court justices struck down the law because of the severe and unprecedented harm to the core character of the state of Israel as a democratic country. The justices also voted 12 to 3 that they had the authority to overturn so-called basic laws, major pieces of legislation that serve as a sort of a constitution for Israel. It was a significant blow to Netanyahu and his hardline allies, who claimed the national legislature, not the high court, should have the final word over the legality of legislation and other key decisions. The The justices said the Knesset, or parliament, does not have omnipotent power. After months of extra duty at sea providing protection for Israel, the USS Gerald R. Ford aircraft carrier strike group will sail for home in the coming days, the Navy announced on Monday. The Ford was sent to the eastern Mediterranean to be within striking distance of Israel since the day after Hamas's October 7th attacks. The carrier stayed in the eastern Mediterranean while its accompanying warships had sailed into the Red Sea where they repeatedly intercepted incoming ballistic missiles and attack drones that were fired from Houthi-controlled Yemen. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin visited the Ford last month. The Ford and the USS Dwight D. Eisenhower aircraft carrier have been part of a two-carrier presence bracketing the Israel-Hamas war, underscoring U.S. concerns that the conflict will widen. The Eisenhower has recently patrolled near the Gulf of Aden at the mouth of the Red Sea waterway where many commercial vessels have come under attack in recent weeks. The U.S. military said Sunday that its forces shot and killed several Iran-backed Houthi rebels when they tried to attack a cargo ship in an escalation of maritime conflict that's linked to the war in Gaza. The Ford and its accompanying warships will be replaced by the amphibious assault ship, the USS Bataan, and its accompanying warships, the USS Mesa Verde and the USS Carter Hall. The three vessels had been in the Red Sea and had been transiting toward the eastern Mediterranean over the last few days. The next headline, How Antique Items Become Heirlooms. Kentucky's Museum Bees Are Creating a Buzz in the World of Luxury Art by Kirby Adams of the Louisville Courier-Journal. There's a lot of buzz going around about an Anchorage, Kentucky art studio and the Museum Bees collection being hatched there weekly. Each Wednesday, artist and owner Tracy Mayer releases a new round of his artwork called Museum Bees, which sends customers swarming Instagram to be first in line to snatch up their favorites. Celebrated in Garden and Guns 14th Annual Made in the South Awards, Mayer and his Museum Bees collection is recognized as the winner in the crafts category for the decorative wall hangings in the December-January issue. There are no hard and fast rules for any of it, Mayer told the Courier-Journal. just seems to be the creative formula that I enjoy. 
Luxurious, whimsical, and one-of-a-kind over the past 12 years, Mayer has created thousands and thousands of captivating and collectible art pieces made from recycled antique frames from the 1800s and what seems to be an endless assortment of ornamental golden bees, ducks, rabbits and dogs, plus milagros, seashells, costume jewelry, watch faces, pieces of old cuckoo clocks, and curiosities. And at $65 a piece, each museum bee is a little piece of affordable gilded luxury. A lot of people don't want a big, huge piece of art. They want a little piece of luxury, the artist said. They want a little taste of the cake rather than eating the entire bakery. Mayer works out of a comfortable two-story studio filled with natural light that's located at the end of a gravel drive. The space works as a gallery and a studio with hundreds of museum bees hung from the walls, displayed on tables and waiting on shelves for the perfect buyer. Just beyond the displays, Mayer and his co-worker Garrett Stansbury get busy as they cut, sand, glue, and wax the frames or hunt for the perfect object to become the focal point for each museum bee. All the while, a big fluffy studio dog named Potter wanders among the customers who browse the containers filled with a hodgepodge of curiosities. Essentially, this is a recycling project where we take 150-year-old antique frames, we cut them down and give them a new life as a tiny piece of luxury, the artist explained. New shoes are fine, but broken in, they're without equal. There's no substitute for the beauty earned and polished in time. Before moving his business to Anchorage, Mayer dealt with antiques in regularly resized antique frames to hold antique paintings. He writes about the beauty of these antique frames from the 1860s and 70s in his book, Museum Bees. Patterns on patterns, wild colors, detailed carvings, and ornamental textures, writes Mayer. The frames are specific to their time. They reflect the fashion and culture of the era. A dozen years ago, Mayer took the leftover pieces from an ornate 200-year-old frame, rebuilt it in a much smaller size, and added a gold Napoleon B in the middle. The bee in the center had an unexpected effect, he writes. It grounded the composition and let the frame become the focus. From bees, Mayer expanded his hunt for castings of dragonflies, butterflies, and frogs. He added to the collection with vintage brooches, belt buckles, and women's compacts. Nearly anything small enough to fit on his frames is game, as long as it tickles his fancy. It's like Forrest Gump's box of chocolates. You never know what you'll find inside, Mayer said. We're also creating museum bees using charred bourbon barrels as the frame, oyster shells, and wood printing blocks from India. There are no slow days for the worker bees. Since 2011, Museum Bees has produced over 20,000 pieces with new frames offered to customers each Wednesday on Instagram. I try not to repeat designs, and we produce between 250 and 300 unique designs each week, he said. We sell in stores across the country, and lots of sales come from the internet. We ship all over the world. It's not unusual for customers to send Mayer photos of their personal Museum Bees collections. Some people have bought dozens and placed them on a shelf in front of books, hung them with framed artwork, or displayed a collection of them on a wall next to a doorway or on a piece of furniture. The possibilities are endless. Mayer signs every Museum Bee with the initials of the current Kentucky Derby winner. This year, it was Mage, so you will find an M.A. on the back of the bees that were created in 2023. If you own a Museum B from 2018, there's a J on the back for Justify, who won the Kentucky Derby that year. 
We like to say that here in Kentucky, the year begins on the first Saturday in May. Of the 20,000 museum bees, some are silly, many are beautiful and refined, others are sentimental, and that's what makes museum bees so pleasing. They range in size from 1 inch to 7 inches, and they're backed by the motto, Be Kind and Inspire. Mayer also makes unique custom pieces from family keepsakes, and these one-of-a-kind pieces cost the same $65 as all other museum bees. Simplified Student Aid Form Gets a Soft Launch by Medora Lee The long-awaited simplified free application for federal student aid, known as FAFSA or the FAFSA form, to request financial help for 24-25 year is finally here. The Department of Education officially launched the new FAFSA form this week, about three months later than its usual October 1st date. The period leading up to and following December 31st is serving as a soft launch, allowing the government to monitor and respond in real time to any potential issues impacting the applicant's experience, according to the Federal Student Aid website. The form will be available periodically during the soft launch, though users may encounter planned pauses as the Department of Education conducts site maintenance and makes technical updates. You will have plenty of time to complete the FAFSA FAFSA form, the website reads. If you do submit your form during the soft launch, your information will be saved and you won't need to resubmit your form or any other related information. If your form is unavailable when you or your family members try to access it, please try again later. For the 2024-25 school year, FAFSA will be reduced to just 36 questions from 108, including detailed financial information, and it will be easier to import income data from tax records. Along with a pared-down form, the Department of Education changed its formula, so among other things, more students would be awarded Pell Grants, which don't have to be repaid. It also will no longer include a sibling discount, so families with more than one child in college may get less aid. The goal of the new FAFSA form is to make it easier for students and families to get money to pay for school, but the lateness in getting it out may have complicated things for those who have completed this year. Worse, schools won't even receive any information they need to determine aid until the end of January, the Department of Education said. Since no other deadlines for submission or decisions have moved back, the process has been compressed, making it more important than ever to stay calm focused, and organized, and get everything right the first time, or risk leaving money on the table. Here's some of what you can expect. Less time and maybe less support. Due to the shortened timeline, students and families not only have less time to complete the FAFSA, but may not get as much help as they normally would. So make sure you know requirements from schools you're interested in. Those states with FAFSA completion as a high school graduation requirement will be operating under immense pressure to support students in a timely manner and to ensure all requirements are met, the National College Attainment Network warned in a statement in November. If you need to make corrections or additions, answer school questions, or provide more information, you won't be able to until February at the earliest, further delaying financial aid offers, said Shannon Vasconcelos college coach at childcare operator Bright Horizons. So make sure to get all your ducks in a row up front, she said. Prepare and send any information up front 
if you have special circumstances. If the tax year 2022 information for the 24-25 FAFSA is no longer representative of your financial situation, there's no time for a lot of back and forth. Also, send your information to all the schools you're even just considering so there's no delay if you do decide to apply. If you don't apply, the school just won't do anything with the information, and there's no harm. And with that, we have come to the end of our reading of today's Cape Cod Times. We've gone through all of the local news. Uh, We've read most of the national news, and we are coming up against the clock. So this is your reader, Eric, saying be well, be safe, look after each other, remember our vets. Bye for now.